0: Welcome to the One Last Sketch Podcast, a show dedicated to science fiction, fantasy, and history. I'm your host, Michael. I'm joined by my two companions, Marie and Corey. This is episode 37, an impromptu recording on news of the, the very sad news of the passing of Ursula K. Le Guin, who has definitely been a topic of note on this podcast, as you might know by looking through our library of episodes. January 22nd, age of 88. Uh, The news hit like a bag of bricks for me.
1: I cried. She did. I cried a lot. Compared to all those deaths we had in 2016, when the people were starting to say, 2016, would you leave us the hell alone and stop taking our great artists and things? I didn't care about any of those people nearly as much as I did when Ursula Kayla Quinton died. Which is sort of interesting, because she died at the age of 88. Which is pretty... Long life for lots of for lots of people compared to those who died, but I I wondered if it was because maybe it's because she spent I spent more time with her on my couch at home, one on one with you know her, a version of her, and that was what I missed the most. But yeah,
2: I think part of what it is, we're all very book oriented people. We all read a lot. We're all people who that's one of our preferred forms of entertainment. Um, So for us, the loss of a favorite author hit much closer to home because it's someone we're more inclined to care about, I think, as far as a celebrity goes.
0: I don't remember feeling this way about an author death since Lloyd Alexander. Lloyd Alexander's death is really the last time it really hit this close to home.
1: Yeah. And I mean, Um, when I found out Lloyd Alexander was dead, it was like five years after the fact, so it was sort of sad for me when I found out, but it wasn't like it had just happened.
0: Yeah, I had just gotten into his work, and this was long enough ago that I learned of it through a newspaper article Mm. at the time it happened. And I mean, Terry Pratchett dying a couple of years ago was also a pretty big deal, but we were eased into that because Terry Pratchett had been... Writing about dealing with his health issues. Shake
2: hands with death. Terry Pratchett, the end of his life was, I I think by his own choice, was very highly publicized, too. There was an awareness in the public eye of his gradual decline. With Le Guin, it seemed very sudden, at least to us.
1: Yeah, with Terry Pratchett, I mean, his his incredible anger towards that he couldn't end his life the way he'd like to was a big part of um, advocacy that he was doing at that time. So, and we were aware as his writing kind of wasn't quite as um, tight as it had been before in in a few of the later Discworld books coming out as he needed more assistance, you could tell that he was deteriorating as a personality as well, and then his body also did as well, which in a lot of ways I think was a relief potentially for him
2: and
0: maybe for those around closer to him too. Yeah. With Le Guin, her health conditions weren't publicized by her family, which is understandable. Mm-hmm. But it didn't even at the age of 88 she was still writing, she was still releasing fiction, she was still doing interviews, still providing incisive commentary, and yes, she was 88 years old, but she was firing on all cylinders. Mm-hmm. Sharp and as attack. With a <laughs> With a literary colossus like her, it just felt like she might never go away. (laughs) I think we we all needed her at this point and that she would just continue on.
1: Yeah, I think we just wished that she would never stop. I was, I think the bit was that because I had just so recently, in these past five years or so, become acquainted with her work. And sort of become moved from being quite liking her into a huge fan. Into this is my favorite author. The neat part of it, one neat part of it, was that I could potentially meet her, and now I can't do that.
0: Yeah, and I had just reread *The Farthest Shore* at the very beginning of this year, mm. which is itself, as we've discussed in the episode where we talked about it, a mm-hmm. *Treatise on Death and Death's Place*. I'm otherwise. done with doing.
1: I will return to
0: Gaunt. (laughs) In some ways, it felt a bit apropos after reading that. Also, obviously, very sad Mm
2: -hmm. to have
0: those two things kind of coincide within my memory. Well, we just started off talking about the effect that this news has had on us. We'll now talk about how we got into her work and what it's meant for us. I started reading Le Guin in high school. The first book I read by Le Guin was The Farthest Shore... Again, it just (laughs) felt like completing the cycle with this year, Mm. and I've been reading her ever since, picking up her books all through my time after that. She was definitely a huge formative influence on me, not only uh, as having an interest in writing and science fiction and fantasy, but just the way I would approach works in reading them, because her criticism was very incisive, and you would find it in her fiction as well. And if there's two things I took away from her work that really stuck with me, number one was her dedication to the craft. Just how much time and thought she put into the language of her work, getting the rhythm right, fitting the style to the themes of her work. She's very much into getting the voice right. And her prose, you just need to read it out loud at any point. To see how much she cared about her work on the sentence level. How much she cared about literature and language to its most minute form. And expanding that out into having excellently constructed works of fiction as well that came out of that. But it always started from the most basic level of how do I say this? the best for this particular kind of story that I'm working on. And the second thing that really stood out was that she believed in the power of stories to be able to literally change the world, that Mm -hmm. you could use stories to challenge the narratives that we have in maintaining the status quo and you could use fantasy and science fiction particularly to reveal to people that the world does not have to be the way that it is that there are other ways of being even other ways to approach narrative in many cases and words like in the earth sea cycle where words could quite literally change the world is just a reflection of her belief that that was the case with literature as well
2: mm-hmm yeah, I first encountered Le Guin in my mid-20s, um, and it was a combination, I think, of you recommending her and one of her novellas appearing in, again, Dangerous Visions. Um, so the first work I would have read would be The Word for World is Forest, uh, followed fairly shortly after by The Left Hand of Darkness, which has definitely since become one of my favorite books. Yeah, I, I agree with a lot of things you said. Um I, I think regarding her I would like to regard her as an influence on my own writing. I don't know if I don't know how much it comes across, but what I love what I love about her work, what I've always loved about her work, is she takes science fiction, she takes fantasy But she actually does something interesting with it. I mean, too often, there are genres that get stripped of any substance in favor of special effects. You've got the classic good wizard versus the evil wizard lobbing giant fireballs across mountains type thing. Le Guin takes you to another world where it literally feels like you're on another world, but where it's populated by people, not by cliches, not by stereotypes. And she makes you very much care about those characters and like you said, she shows you different ways of imagining how the world could be. Um, I don't remember the exact wording, so I won't try because I'm not going to do justice to it. But there's this wonderful quote where she talks about sending imaginary people to imaginary planets to learn new ways of living because she's worried about how we're living on our own. And I, I think that perfectly that's probably the most perfect summary I've ever read of her work. And she was the one who coined it.
1: Well, I encountered her because, um, I know the two of you, and that's a good thing.
2: Well, you married one of us.
1: Yeah. I won't say who. And, (laughs) um, I read them pretty well in the same order, uh, that Corey did, um, but I think it was really, actually, when I was reading The Wind's Twelve Quarters, which was not that long ago, when I really thought, realized that she was the greatest author I'd ever read, um... And I think it's partly that voice that you're talking about, because each story is totally unique within the characters that she has. And in the cadence of the prose, I think, I think I've mentioned the, the one, those who walk away from Amalas, that the voice of the narrator doesn't actually get the motivations of the people who walk away. And it's this wonderful kind of sing-songy thing about it but then contrasting that with all with the other different parts. And I loved how in that, it seemed to have those little paragraph blurbs at the, at the beginning, sometimes a little bit longer, where she's reflecting on her own work. And I found her conception of this idea of the psycho-myth, which sort of jives a lot with lots of sort of a, a psychological theory, that things are psychologically true, though not necessarily true in reality, but that it is these internal interactions that uh, motivate and um, ping off of other people and that's really what all these larger things like love or war is usually about is these smaller internally driven parts all organically sort of spreading out and interacting and then you had that wonderful way of just placing something into this beautifully coherent within itself world that didn't need any further explanation than that which she gave because it seemed to exist entirely on its own. Instead of sort of, you know, a la Robert Jordan describing things ad nauseam, she described what you needed to know, and that in and of itself echoed from the rest of the world because it was just there. I
0: think one of the terms often applied to her science fiction is that it was anthropological in its approach. Um, She hated the word soft science fiction... Mm -hmm.
2: I think as she should (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, I mean her work was often described as soft science fiction but the reason she hated it and the reason I think it's a very justified thing to hate is that it implies it's somehow inferior to hard science fiction Um, Le Guin wasn't interested in circuit diagrams she didn't show you how the rocket ship worked she showed you how having the rocket ship affected the people who used it And quite frankly, I always found that was a more interesting story.
0: Her work is very humanistic, very human-centered. She, as we turned before, she had a very anthropological approach to her fiction. She was interested in societies, personal relationships, technology, and how it affected societies as opposed to getting into the nuts and bolts of the technology itself. Mm -hmm. All of her work was very much human-focused.
2: Well, even, um, even like the one big technological conceit in her stories, the uh, Hainish Cycle has the Ansible, um, which allows people who are literally light years ac- away from each other to instantaneously communicate. So her one that, that's what I love, is her one big technological thing that she's curious about is how technology is used to connect people. Mm-hmm. and um you mentioned her stories being about people that's one thing i've always loved about them is she almost never writes villains like there's never someone in her stories that i can think of who's an, who's an out and out bad guy there are people who do bad things usually for personal or selfish reasons but they're not inherently evil for its own sake because they've decided it's more fun they're just flawed people trying to do what they think is best and choosing actions that have destructive consequences.
1: But they're not even flawed they're just people hmm. and you could and they're not always just products of their environment they're people that are that are that have grown in that way because that's the path that they've had and that everything that has been has been a cascade from whatever. Genetic environment or social environment that they're in, and moving forward as she, as humanistic as she is, she, there's lots of different species in her stories, and that's sort of, to, I think, to break apart what it means to be human in a lot of ways, especially in the conceit that uh, humans are only one part of the sort of heinish expansion.
2: So maybe maybe Thinking. a better word, am oh, sorry, maybe a better way of phrasing it on my part. Mm. Then it's not that she writes about flawed humans; she writes about human flaws. Mm. Maybe. Because the conceit is just that people have flaws. It's not like there's a perfect human and a flawed human. It's like we're all somehow flawed. I
1: don't know. I feel like the dragons are perfect in their own way. Like, things they're don't not have human, to have flaws. No. I think, though, no, but they're just different species. This is what I mean. That everything has its own characterization, and it's just how different things bounce against each other and, and, how, they, and, and how they interact. That's what drives... Life and interaction as it is now, and that's why I think it's so compelling. Is that um, it's people who just run into each other in a lot of ways, or if things happen to ha- to occur in a certain way, then this is this is the fallout that you get, and it can be beautiful or it can be destructive, or it is simply how it is.
0: Yeah, within science fiction circles, she is very well regarded for bringing in the social sciences as something that you can explore with fantastic literature Mm -hmm. and make an argument with. Going on the theme of not really having any villains, something that she brought up in her book on writing called Steering the Craft is the idea that narratives don't need to be based around conflict. And when we're in high school, this is one of the fundamental things that they tell us a narrative is supposed to have, that everything falls into man versus man, man versus nature, etc., etc. And this is also going back to what I had said earlier about showing us different ways of being. This conflict-based narrative really comes out of Western society and the ideas of competition and living in within capitalism as a system. And Le Guin drew on influences much beyond Western literature towards getting her ideas and putting them in place about how narratives come together. And she never believed that this was fundamental to telling a story. There were other ways that went outside of those norms. And like you said, it comes down to there were people who did evil In her books, but usually you don't find direct Mm -hmm. villains per se. But this also comes down to exploring not just other ways of being, but other narrative structures and how we think about stories. Because a lot of her books don't follow the typical introduction, rising action, climax, denouement kind of structure. We talked at great lengths about how the dispossessed has this very intricate reflecting structure that doesn't fall into that paradigm at all Mm -hmm. and most of her books really don't they go into these different directions and have different ways of constructing narratives like there's a book called changing planes that's one of my personal favorites which is just like a collection of anthropological treatises on different people and different universes but it doesn't You don't feel dissatisfied at the end of having read it that you didn't enjoy a complete narrative experience. It feels whole in of itself, despite not following any of the typical structures that you tend to find in Western
1: literature. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I didn't know very much about her from the critical standpoint, but I got the sense that she was kind of a firecracker and I liked that about her. I, I particularly in uh, the short story that's about, um, oh, what's the character's name that leads the revolution that just possessed? Odo! Oh, no. There we go. And, uh, I feel like that was, I'm like, I feel like this is sort of the spirit or was like, hey, Le Guin, um, doing something fully, even after a stroke, stumping along.
2: the Yeah. The impression I always had of Le Guin from reading her work and, um, some brief comments I've read about her from other authors. I think the firecracker analogy is a good one, but,
1: um, Oh, but it's not good enough. (laughs)
2: It's always been this kind of sense. I've had that a firecracker, but a very focused, very calm one. Like one of those people who doesn't need to get angry to destroy you. She can be perfectly calm. And if she so chose, she could have just ripped you apart, but you would have been flattered that she would have taken the time to do so.
0: Yeah, something that comes across very clearly in both her fiction and critical work is just her extreme intelligence, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that she came from a very broad level of influence and a very deep love of literature that extended worldwide.
1: And an intense understanding of just what people are, whether or not they're intelligent, which is, I think... And also impressing someone who is intelligent to also be able to communicate on on levels that are outside of just, you know, IQ or knowledge. I think it's,
2: well, fr- I think another way to look at it too, it's an ability to recognize different types of intelligence. Like, Le Guin was very book smart, certainly. Not all of her characters are, but by no means does that make them stupid. Like, they're, they're all the kind of people who are intelligent in their own ways, usually.
0: It's a bit of a cliche to say it about writers, but she shows a level of empathy, I think, that's unusual. And I also think this comes from somebody who read across cultures, across history. Like, she Mm -hmm. studied, I think, French and Italian medieval literature, and it comes to that again, back to that point about words being able to show you different ways of being that she saw this in previous works and was able to come to an understanding of it through narrative and believe that she could continue on with that process through her own writing.
2: Yeah. I think, um, I think one thing that is very, I mean, the multitude of influences in her work are very obvious. Um, you get a lot of people who write in any style, any type of story who they try to write the type of story they've always read. So as a result, they had a very narrow range of influences. Um, Le Guin very clearly has a broad range of influences. Like it, 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 it comes across in her work how widely read she is. Now she hasn't been... She's not the science fiction writer who only ever read science fiction. She's the science fiction writer who read everything and chose to pursue science fiction. And I, I think mm-hmm. it's one of the reasons her work is far stronger, frankly, than many people in the field.
1: I think she wrote something until she enjoyed reading it too. Probably. Until Which she...
0: is the mark of any great author.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, another cliche... But in her case, she's generally right. And <laughs> mm-hmm.
2: another cliche about authors is that they write the kind of story they would want to read. And if that's the case, again, Le Guin wrote these very empathetic, complex, yet still approachable and very warm books.
1: Yeah, way more approachable than Jean Wolfe. We were mentioning that the other day, that her books were dense but um wholesome maybe, easy you'd and instead of sort of feeling like you'd been I you don't know, punched in the face with prose after a couple hours like you might with uh, the Book of the New Sun, uh this um You'd more be like, oh, it's 3 a.m. I've still got wind in my sails to get through this.
2: (laughs) Sorry, I find Le Guin is dense and challenging, but never punishing. Yeah.
0: Yeah, there are books that we all would like individually. Authors that we really like that we don't necessarily share with other people or can find much to talk about Mm -hmm. when we share those works with other people.
2: Mm-hmm. and
0: le guin more than any other author wrote books that almost demanded discussion mm-hmm. and i think that that comes across just practically in our terms from how many episodes we've devoted to her books that we would choose her books because we know yeah There's going to be stuff that we can all mutually find interesting and talk about.
1: In this little book club. And we shall continue to do so.
0: (laughs) She has that level of appeal that goes across a very wide range of people. Mm -hmm. And maybe that is mainly because her object of study in all of her novels is different sorts of people.
1: (laughs) Yep
2: there's um the argument that's been made that good literature rewards rereading and um i think Le Guin definitely falls into that like just looking how much we've come to be able to say about her like even in some of the podcasts most of them that was my first time reading the book when we talked about it mm-hmm. and if you can get that much to talk about after a first read through like I-, I could imagine we could still be having these conversations for years and every time we re- re- read the book we'll get something new
0: well, just about all of our conversations on my end were from rereads.
1: <laughs> the sad part is, is that This now... is just
0: demonstrating Corey's point. Yeah.
1: <laughs> the sad... Okay, fair enough. The sad part is that now is that we know that we're constrained to a certain number of things, whereas before it was potentially always increasing.
0: So her prose is dense, but always approachable. Mm-hmm. Uh... I wouldn't say all of her books are ones you can just pick up and read. Some of her later work, like Lavinia, kind of requires you to have read the Aeneid to start getting something out of it. But the majority of her work, I find, is that sort where you could really start anywhere with Le Guin Mm -hmm. and you'd be able to latch on to something. Yeah. Now, what really did surprise me about the news of Le Guin's passing was how much play it got outside of science fiction fantasy circles and this was really heartening to me because I think mm. she should be remembered as one of the great authors of the 20th century
2: mm-hmm. as
0: as I've said many times as a literary colossus mm-hmm. of this time period and like I would hear about it on CBC radio there were discussions that went far outside of the pretty constrained field of science fiction, fantasy authors and critics.
2: Yeah. I find, um, I, I agree with you. She's definitely one of the giants of 20th century literature. Um, she definitely deserves to be remembered as such. And I'm pretty sure she will be.
0: She not only showed us her unique approach to fantasy and science fiction. She also shared how we could read it.
1: And she was a woman. So there.
0: That was another point that I wanted to go into, which is the gender question <laughs> of all this. Because Le Guin herself had observed that in the 60s and 70s, most of the most popular writers of science fiction and fantasy at that time were women. But after these women passed, they were slowly written out of the history of science fiction and fantasy. This wasn't just the case with SFF. Joanna Russ wrote a book called How to Suppress Women's Writing, Mm. which kind of outlines how this process works across any genre, really.
2: I mean, it's unfortunate that that's the case. I mean, Le Guin is too good, her writing is too powerful to be ignored. I think she is going to be safe from any such treatment. But I'm also sad that she would have to make that comment. And I, I don't doubt that it's true, unfortunately, that she's kind of the lucky woman who got to...
1: She's not lucky. She was skilled. There's no luck in that. She's just very good at what she did, and she could stand upon that. Le
0: Guin... Had this extreme level of quality that it couldn't Mm. be ignored but there are other Mm. authors who are writing just as well as men who Mm. are remembered now who are forgotten who didn't reach those extreme heights but considering Mm. who is remembered should also be in Mm. that historical narrative
1: I mean she wrote better than most people full stop so Yeah. yeah Um, I like the, the story that you told the other day about the uh, anthology. I think that was.
0: Yeah, Le Guin is going to also be remembered for her outspoken feminism. I think that's. <laughs> not
2: well, that's certainly not a bad argument. thing.
0: No.
1: I, I will not. I will not write an introduction for your book full of men. Good day. There, sir. There's a
0: great <laughs> anecdote about. Uh, an editor sending her the first of his anthologies of great science fiction because he wanted her to write the foreword and she just wrote a letter back going, "Uh, everybody in this book is a dude. (laughs) I'm not writing your foreword. (laughs) I did not come to this point in my life to be involved in this shaping of a science fiction narrative which I can't be a part of.
1: I can and. write my own mythologies, so there.
0: <laughs> Sometimes the feminism in the work is explicit, like The Left Hand of Darkness, which is oh, all about gender. Oh, Sometimes maybe. it's not explicit, but it's always there. Mm-hmm. Well, Even if it's, it's on the simple level of humanism and mm-hmm. giving interior lives to everybody.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, it's always there, but a key part of it is... If you took it away, so much of what makes the book special would be gone. Like you just said, I mean, it gets expressed in terms of the humanism and in terms of giving characters internal worlds. And, I mean, quite frankly, if you took out the feminism, you're going to take out all of that and you're going to be left with something that's a much paler imitation of what you have.
1: Mm-hmm. She kicks in butt. Literally.
0: Yeah, it was quite a life. She's quite the literary figure mm-hmm.
1: it,
0: she was 88 years old but I think it just felt like we still needed her mm-hmm. at this point and we wanted her to keep mm-hmm. on for a few more years and keep mm-hmm. sharing those stories
2: mm-hmm.
0: as long as she possibly could that being Some... said it was a pretty good run <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: <laughs> and I'm going to read all of it <laughs>
0: too bad that she had to pass with the world in the shape that it is. Seeing mm-hmm. the world go into the shape that it is, but I also think that she, out of anybody, had hoped that we would crawl our way out of this.
1: I feel like she did have an incredible amount of wisdom, which is sort of like, uh, not something that I think you would say easily of most people, but I think that in reading sort of the intensity and the gentleness of her work, that you can say that she was somebody who had a real understanding of people and history and what the future could be.
0: If there was one word that you could use to summarize her work and her as a person, it's wisdom. And that's not something we apply lately.
2: No. no. I think going along with that, I mean, the wisdom absolutely. I think there's a certain degree of optimism to her work as well. Mm-hmm. Um, when we talked about the tombs of Aswan, for example, um, I mean, it gets very dark in some parts in terms of what's happening to the internal worlds of these characters, but there's always kind of this hope where this hope is introduced that things will get better, and it's kind of always there.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I guess she's crossed over the wall, down the
2: slope. I know she will definitely be missed among our little group for sure, hopefully by the wider world, as she so sorely deserves to be.
0: On that somber note, this has been the One Last Sketch podcast. You can find previous episodes on onelastsketch.wordpress.com. That's my blog. I've also written a lot about her stuff. You can find previous episodes also on iTunes, on Stitcher Radio, and on Google Play. You guys are at...
1: I'm at w- uh, but don't bother reading that. Go read us like you'll be a better person.
2: I'm at fromspeechfire.wordpress.com. I swear I will update one of these days, and I agree Go read, or I agree with Marie, go read some Gwynn in the meantime. Or, you know, always. <laughs> not waiting to get to you. <laughs> no. <laughs> that would be a disappointment, baby. I'm not, yeah. <laughs> at, at this stage, I don't think I'm good enough to be the opening act to Le Guin.
0: Thank you all for listening. Mm-hmm. If you enjoyed this podcast, spread the word of Le Guin. Mm-hmm. Over We're normally to, much happier than this. Yeah, spread it over to the to the four corners of the world, spread it out along the wind's twelve quarters.